This episode of the Productivityist Podcast is brought to you by Blinkist. Fit reading into your life with key takeaways from the world's best nonfiction books in text and audio. I'm a big fan of Blinkist, and I'm going to share more about this fantastic service with you during this episode, so stick around for that. This episode of the Productivityist Podcast is also brought to you by Front. Now, if you're ready to transform your team's productivity with efficient email, you've got to give Front a try. And you can do that. I'm going to share that with you during this episode of the podcast. You will love Front uh, as much as I do, if not more. So stick around for that. But for now, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Productivities Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Vardy. And this week, you're in for a special treat. Not like every other episode isn't a treat, but this one's special because I had the opportunity to meet this gentleman uh, in uh, the fall of 2018. We sat down, we had coffee, we talked about a whole bunch of stuff. And now I get to talk with him and you can listen. The one and only Michael Hyatt is on the show today. He's the author of the book, Free to Focus, A Total Productivity System to Achieve More by doing less. And we talked about a whole bunch of stuff. It's really great when two productivity, uh, you know, uh, enthusiasts get together and dive into things, you know, like the idea of distractions, you know, what the definition of productivity really is, you know, and we are so aligned in a lot of things. It was just a real treat to be able to sit down for this discussion with him and then share it with you right now. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Michael Hyatt here on the Productivityist Podcast. I'd like to welcome Michael Hyatt to the Productivityist Podcast. Michael, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Mike. I appreciate it. So you have a new book out. Uh, it's called Free to Focus. And uh, I was privileged enough to get an advanced copy to look at. And uh, I got to say, this is the book that I think a lot of people uh, have needed for many, many years. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I really, one of the things that I, I, I want to kind of get into is this idea of like, what is, because we hear, def, we hear productivity and the term gets thrown around a lot. I mean, there's no shortage of, you know, people talking about how to be more productive and, and, and uh, you know, productivity is key, but what is your definition of productivity? Yeah, it's, it's basically the system that you use to get things done. And unfortunately for so many people in our culture, productivity has become an end in itself. So that instead of actually using productivity to achieve a greater end, we adopt apps and systems and strategies and hacks to, to, to shrink the amount of work, but then the work explodes and fills up that space that we just vacated. So that's the problem, I think, with the, mo the modern approach to productivity is that it's not leading to more free time. It's not leading... Uh, to us getting, giving, being more intentional about the, uh, the time with loved ones or with our health or anything else. It's just total work and people are exhausted. They're overwhelmed. Yeah. It's, it's almost like this culture of speed and productivity is equated to, and you talk about this in the book, you talk about like productivity is not about getting more things done. It's about getting the right things done. And I think that's exactly. where confusion lies, right? Um, one of the things you touch on too is the idea of hitting the reset button, you know, like kind of uh, we've, we've read, and I know you've read this. I know you've read Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism, and he was on the show mm -hmm. not too long ago. And that would be, I guess, one example of hitting the reset button. But what do you mean by when you say, hey, look, let's, let's take a, a hard stop or a pause and let's just hit reset and go forward from there? Yeah, I think we've got to start 
at the very beginning, sort of the Vince Lombardi thing of this is a football. So we've got to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we're trying to achieve through productivity? So the first third of the book is all under the umbrella of stop, which is very counterintuitive, particularly for higher achievers who want to go, 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 execute, get the stuff done. But I think we got to stop and ask ourselves, why are we on this hamster wheel? What is it we're trying to accomplish? And where is it leading? So the first chapter is about getting a vision and particularly a vision for freedom. Because, you know, most productivity, at least the way we're seduced into to trying so much of this stuff, is it's going to lead to greater freedom. You don't have more control. And it rarely ends up with that. We just have the ability to end up filling those empty spaces, as I said, with more work. So when I talk about freedom, I'm talking about clear on the kind of freedom, the freedom to actually focus on what matters most, to do the kind of creative work, the kind of concentrated work that uh, moves the needle in our business and in our personal life. But it's also the freedom to be fully present. And with the apps we've got, with the smartphones, with all the stuff that we've got, rarely are we present in the situation where we're actually sitting. So I've been in meetings, you've been in meetings before, where people are uh, sidetracked by their phones. They're anywhere present except the place where they are. Or worse, you go out to a restaurant, and this happened to my wife and I last week. We saw this other couple across the room with their faces and their smartphones and assume, I was assuming that they're out on a date, but they weren't present with each other. They were present to somebody that was, uh, you know, hundreds of miles or maybe thousands of miles away. And then the third thing is the, the freedom to be spontaneous. You know, I want white space, breathing room in my life. So I've got the freedom to stop if a friend drops by or if somebody calls me with an urgent need. I can stop and go attend to that, help a friend without feeling like all this stuff is getting left undone. And then finally, and I learned this from my Italian friends, the freedom to do nothing at all. They have a phrase in, in Italy that talks about the sweetness of doing nothing. And I think that's underrated in our culture. We are so busy that we don't have time to think. And usually it's in those spaces where we're doing nothing, like taking a shower or out for a walk or something like that, where we have the creative breakthroughs, where we're solving complex problems. You know, it's not when we're just grinding it out hour after hour and working 78 hours a, uh, a week. So you're not the type that does the whole, I'm going to schedule every moment of the day in your calendar, like we hear a lot of people doing. Yeah, I don't. I like a lot of white space in, in my calendar. I mean, for starters, it's defensive because things usually take longer than what I schedule. So uh, if I schedule everything to the gills, that's just that's a, a recipe for me for frustration. Um, I want to have I want to have white space, space that's not scheduled. I mean, think of it this way. When you open up a book. If the type ran all the way to the edges of the page, you would feel anxious. You would feel overwhelmed. But publishers allow for white space so that the book breathes so you're not overwhelmed. Well, we need that in our lives, too. I like that idea. I mean, it's I was just posting something on Instagram the other day and the typeface went right to the edges. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's got to be in a little bit. There's got to be some room to breathe. That's right. <laughs> um, I want to touch on a bit uh, about what you talk about, like making time for others. You and I had a chance to chat when I was in uh, in Nashville. And it was one of those situations where no agenda. We just sit. We had a cup of coffee. We talked about we nerded out about Mac stuff. Uh, all that actually it was w w talking to you. Was about, yeah, it was fun. I got to, I actually picked up the iPad pro, the 12 inch did all that whole nine yards thing. But, um, how, 
how important is it for people to understand that there is a lot of value that you talk about, like one of the quotes you have is the best things in life will probably never be checked off a to-do list. Like to me, that's one of those things. You, one of the things we did mm-hmm. was that. Um, how do you, how do you kind of instill and how does the book and your, in your framework instill that capability for others to be able to do that? Well, I think partly it's understanding the why behind that. So in chapter three of the book, I talk about rejuvenation. And I talk about uh, the importance, if you want to be your most productive self, the most productive version of yourself, you got to take time to rejuvenate. And so here's what that looks like. First of all, taking time for sleep. You know, we live in sort of this hustle economy where people brag about how little sleep they get and how busy they are. And, you know, it sounds like a complaint, but it's actually a brag. You know, it's humble bragging. And yet there's nothing that will affect your productivity more then how much sleep you get. This is why when we're reading a book, we find ourselves rereading the same paragraph over and over again because we're tired. We lack focus. We lack the ability to comprehend when we're in that situation. So you can't be as productive as you need to be unless you're getting rest. Same thing is true with nutrition. Same thing is uh, true with the opportunity to reflect. And kind of apropos to your question, the same is true in relationships. We're created as relational people. We've got to have relationships, meaningful relationships that give texture to our life, that give deep meaning to our life. And those things aren't going to come to us if we're not allowing space for them to exist. So again, it kind of goes back to allowing that white space. The reason I was able to spend time with you was simply because I've got the time to do that. So, you know, and it was a, a great conversation. I'm so glad we did it, but I didn't check it off a list. Do you find that there are things when they come to mind for you that you're like, you know, I, I, I don't want to forget this. Like the, some, some of the things that are these, either these things that seem small or trivial, but are actually quite big, like we just talked about, um, that we kind of just go, oh, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Do you, are you one of those people that kind of captures things that may even seem mundane or trivial just to make sure that they, they get covered or are you more like, where do you sit on that fence? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't do them in real time. Rarely I do that. Sometimes I'll jot, you know, in my in my planner, something that I, I don't want to forget. But I have a discipline of journaling every day. You know, it's part of my morning ritual. But I'll journal usually 10 to 15 minutes of journaling. I answer systematically eight questions every morning. And it just kind of gives me a track to run on and uh, keeps me from having to stare at a blank sheet of paper. And so I answer those questions. And that gives me a chance to kind of process the events from the last day. And that's another thing that's really underrated underrated in our culture is the opportunity to reflection. We're so busy going that we don't take time to stop and ask, where am I going and why am I going? And journaling as a part of our rejuvenation uh, practice is a very, very helpful uh, discipline. We'll get back to journaling in a little bit, but I want to get back to even Cal Newport, where we talked about, you know, the idea of digital minimalism, but he also wrote a book called So Good They Can't Ignore You, where he talks about how, why following your passion is bad advice. Now, when I get, as we go through the book, we, we learn about in your book, the idea of the intersection between passion and proficiency. So to me, it's, it's like, uh, I'm not going to say that, that you're saying, Hey, well, if you want to follow your passion, here's how you can be proficient. Can you explain that a little bit so that people uh, can understand, Hey, you know, I'm really passionate about this thing. Uh, how does, how do I make time for that? Or how do I, where, where should I be investing my time when it comes to the things that I'm passionate about and proficient with? Yeah. So I talk about this in chapter two and it's a tool that I have called the freedom compass. And if you imagine a traditional compass, it's a circle. And, you know, at the top of it is true north. 
And so I use that kind of as a metaphor for this is the place where your passion, things that you enjoy doing, things that are deeply satisfying. By the way, this doesn't make uh, mean necessarily that they're easy, but you enjoy doing them. You get satisfaction out of it. And where your proficiency unites, so passion plus proficiency. Proficiency means you got to be good at it, but more importantly, in a work context, people have to be willing to pay you to do them. So, for example, in Nashville, Tennessee, where I live, Music City, USA, we've got tons of musicians. I mean, I could, I could throw a rock for my studio here and probably, you know, clobber 15 musicians. Uh, they love what they're doing. They're good at it by our standards. They just can't make a living at it. That's why they're waiting tables or, you know, serving in the service industry somewhere. So you've got to be good at it and you've got to deliver results that are results that are so good that people are willing to pay you for it. That zone, true north, is what I call the desire zone. The opposite of that, true south, is what I call the drudgery zone. This is These are things that you don't enjoy, you don't get any sense of satisfaction, and worse, you're not any good at, good, good at them. And the cool thing is that oftentimes what's in our drudgery zone is in somebody else's desire zone. So let me explain. So my assistant, Jim, is very good at managing my calendar, managing my email inbox, booking travel, making sure that my agendas are laid out and people get notified on time and all that. I hate all that. I can do it, but I just can't sustain it over a long period of time. So it's in his desire zone. It's in my drudgery zone. And that's what I'm looking for, by the way, in a hire so that we perfectly complement uh, one another. So the premise of the book really is the more that you can work in your desire zone, you're doing the work that truly you were called to do and are equipped to do, the more you're going to be able to create leverage that's going to advance your results, whether it's personally or professionally. It's, it's identifying the 20% that delivers 80% of the results, however you want to define results. So this idea of stop, which is the first thing that you talk about in the book, I, I, I want to come back to that a little bit too, because I agree, it's one of those things that we don't do. We don't slow, it seems like you said, counterintuitive. So you, you've got some stuff that, that we're talking about in there, but then it's this idea of, you know, you've got two other steps in here, right? You know, you've got the idea of cutting and then, and I want to get into that, but also the idea of acting and cutting. One of those things that, that I struggle with even somebody who spends time practicing productivity and I have my own workflow and all that is the, the idea of saying no. So, uh, it, in a, in a succinct way, like how do you kind of, uh, and how does this book kind of help people realize not just through the drudgery zone? Cause I think we talked about, like you touched on that, the idea of saying, Hey, I'm not going to do that because I've identified these things fall into the drudgery right. zone. But what about other things that they, that people are the, the shiny new object, the, the commitment that seems too good to be true, the opportunity that may, uh, may not come along again, you know, in their own minds, that kind of thing. Where, how do you get people to, uh, learn that no is, uh, not just an opportunity or not just a negative word, but an actual opportunity? Yeah, I think it begins when we recognize that, um, you know, our time is a zero sum game. So what that means is that we can't spend our time twice. So if I agree, for example, to have an early morning coffee appointment with a friend or an acquaintance that asks me, that probably means I'm going to give, my, uh, give up my daily workout to go do that. So it's a zero-sum game. Um, when I make one commitment, if I'm going to be a person of integrity and fulfill that commitment, I can't make another commitment for that same uh, time slot. So I think it begins with the recognition that time is the one resource that's finite. You have 168-hour weeks. Every no implies a yes. Every yes implies a no. 
And it's it's a double-edged sword. There's a trade-off. You know, I learned that from Greg McEwen. He talked about that in his book, Essentialism. There's a trade-off. And so that means that if we're going to survive, we've got to be able to say no to the things that aren't congruent with our vision, which I talked about in chapter one, that aren't congruent with our vision, so that we can say a bigger yes to the things that are. So I get very practical in this section on elimination, where I talk about, you know, flexing your no muscle and using things like email templates to say no for you. You know, if somebody asked me on the spot, you know, would I do this? My inclination is to say yes. But if I can do what Dr. Stephen Covey says and put a pause in between the stimulus and the response and just say something as simple as, you know, that sounds like something that would be really fun, but I need to get you in touch with Jim, my assistant, because he's got the context of my whole calendar. That helps. Or if I get an email, I can use an email template and I can employ a strategy that uh, Dr. William Uri uses in the, in the Power of a Positive No, which is the yes, no, yes formula. And I detail this in the book, but it's the idea, for example, I came out of the book publishing world, as you know, and I used to get asked and still get asked by, you know, uh, probably a dozen people a month if I would review their book proposal and give them some advice on publishing this book. And so I hate to say no to that, especially if it's somebody that I know or somebody that's a customer, but here's how I would give a yes, no, yes response. First of all, I would affirm them for asking. So I would say something positive on the front end. Then I want to give them an unequivocal no. So there's no ambiguity and they don't come back asking again. And then the third thing I want to do is leave them with a positive taste in their mouth so that they feel good about our relationship and good about the fact that I said no. So in a book proposal, it would look like this. First, I'd say yes. I would give an affirmation. I'd say, hey, congratulations. You've done something that 95% of people who aspire to be an author will never do, and that is you finished a proposal. Good for you. That's an incredibly important first step. Then I go into the no section, and I say something like, you know, in order to be faithful to my other commitments, I'm afraid I'm going to have to decline your request. So I'm, unam I'm, I'm not ambiguous about it. And at the same time, I'm being gracious and I'm putting it in the context of in order to be faithful to my other commitments, in order to be a person of integrity and be faithful to the commitments I've already made. You know, everybody understands that. I just can't keep putting more food on my plate. I can't keep saying yes to requests. And then I leave them with a yes. You know, and it could be something as simple, you know, I'm, I'm, after I've said no, something like, uh, you know, best of luck with your project. You know, I, I, I can't wait to buy a copy when it comes out. Let me know when it's available or whatever. So yes, no, yes. And to put it in a template so I don't have to go through the anxiety every time that somebody makes a request like that of what am I going to say to them? I could start with the template. I can still personalize it and get it done really in maybe 10 or 15 seconds, something that otherwise would take me, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. Meal planning is important because it prevents us from being a disappointed wreck when dinner time comes around and we have no clue what to make or even if we have the ingredients to make the meal. It's a time and a money saver, but most importantly, it frees up valuable brain space. Creating a meal plan prepares us for the week to come and gives us peace of mind that we're organized and can feed ourselves and our family. That's why I do it and that's why Plan to Eat helps me do it. Your subscription includes access to the Plan to Eat website and fully featured mobile apps on iOS and Android. And Plan to Eat gives you the tools to clip and organize recipes from any website, the ones your family loves and that fit your dietary preferences and needs. 
and you can create a meal plan around your schedule. Then what happens is the plan to eat software automatically creates an organized shopping list based on your plan. So sign up for your free trial at plan slash timecrafting. That's plan forward slash timecrafting. The coupon will be automatically applied to your account. and can be used when you're ready to subscribe. It's valid for new customers only. Give plan to eat a try today. We're going to take a break from the proceedings to talk about our sponsor for this episode, Blinkist. Now, in today's age, it can be really hard to find the time to sit down and learn more. And as a guy who really values how I invest my time and my attention, uh, you know, it's even more pressing that I find better ways to find find pockets where I can learn more. Yes, I have my learning day, my theme day for learning. And one of the things that I do on that theme day is I use Blinkist. It's an app that I highly recommend. And the great thing about Blinkist, it's really the only app that takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes. So you can read to them or listen to them at any given point in time. It's made for busy people. And that's what I really love about it because I'm busy, you're busy, we're all busy. Eight million people are busy and they're using Blinkist right now. And it's got a massive and growing library from self-help, business and health and history books, just lots of different things that you can learn about. I like it because it kind of gives me the sense of uh, whether or not I want to buy a book in full. Actually, I kind of use it in some respects as a preview for books that I may want to add to my library personally. And actually, what's funny is we're talking to Michael Hyatt today, and two of his earlier books, Platform and Your Best Year Ever, are available on Blinkist. So if you want to pick up his new book, and then you also want to listen to some of his past uh, history. You pick up his new book, but then you can you know, check out Platform in Your Best Year Ever on Blinkist. I've used it when I'm driving the car. I use it when I'm going for a run. I use it, personally speaking, when I'm sitting in the bathtub, learning while I'm in the bath, while I'm cleaning myself. Uh, I have uh, listened to tons of books, many of those who have been guests on the show, uh, some of the more popular books out there, you know, Four Hour Work Week, Start With Why, you know, and again, looking at these two books by Michael Hyatt, Platform and Your Best Year Ever, there are just a ton of books available. And right now for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for listeners of the Productivity is Podcast. That's right. You just go to Blinkist.com slash timecrafting and you can start your seven-day free trial today. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I. N-K-I-S-T dot com slash timecrafting, and you can start your free seven-day trial. So don't forget, Blinkist.com slash timecrafting, that's your ticket to getting that free seven-day trial. I highly recommend you give Blinkist a go. It's one of my go-to learning apps. It's it's an app that I have been an avid user of for years, and I'm so happy that they've been sponsoring uh, episodes of the Productivities Podcast, particularly this one. So thanks to Blinkist for sponsoring this episode. And now let's get back to the show. Now, I want to touch on the, we, we get to the, the whole idea of delegation. And one of the things that I think creeps into people's heads, I know I've come across this, is when you delegate, uh, let's say you get an assistant. Um, and I think more people should have, uh, you know, an assistant of some sort, especially if they're entrepreneurs than they do. You know, a lot of people are uh, answering their own emails, doing all that stuff. But one of the things that I've come across, and and it's not just isolated, a few people have said that, like, well, who am I to have an assistant? Like me, um, it, it seems like, you know, that there's an arrogance or an ego, egotistical component about it. How do you help people break that kind of bias? Because we're going to get to some more biases that are going to show up in the third component. But this one is something that I think is a barrier for a lot of people as well. Well, it is. And I think what you've got to realize that if you're an entrepreneur, particularly, you can't scale your business 
until you learn to scale yourself. And the problem is, again, you've got 168 hour a uh, week. And this is why so many entrepreneurs reach a ceiling and their business never grows beyond them because they haven't learned to delegate. And the problem is it really comes down to limiting beliefs. And those show up as sentences in our head. And I've talked to enough entrepreneurs and coached enough entrepreneurs to know that it's usually one of these three sentences. First of all, they think if I want to do it, if I want it done right, I have to do it, what? Myself, right? Or it takes longer to explain how to do it than to just do it myself. Or the third one, I can't really afford it right now. I guess I'll have to do it myself. And the problem is, is if yourself is the measure of your business, that's all the bigger it's going to be. So it is true that it takes longer to explain it the first time. But after you've explained it to somebody and given that work to somebody else, now it's off your plate probably permanently. Then there's this other limiting belief that if you have to do it, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. But the truth is, if you hire the right person, if you hire people for whom the work is in their desire zone, not only can they do it as well as you can, they can do it better than you can. And I've experienced this over and over again with my teammates. They, they constantly surprise me by exceeding my expectations. The third one's a little bit trickier. It always requires an investment before you reap the benefits. So it's like anything else in life. We know this certainly in the financial arena, but it's true in delegation too. You have to spend a little money. And I'm not talking about going crazy here, but it's possible to hire, for example, a virtual executive assistant for as few as, you know, five or 10 hours a week and see the return on that. And for me, I'll tell you what that looked like. I was, you know, doing a lot of these things that were in my drudgery zone, things that I, by the way, couldn't bill my clients for. Nobody wants to pay me to manage my calendar or book my travel or any of the other uh, administrative kind of th kinds of things. And I had a client that the same thing happened with. He was trying to do web development. And I, I asked him in a, in a coaching session, I said, how much do you bill out at? He said, $150 an hour. I said, how good of a developer are you? Are you? And he said, I'm not very good. I'm sort of average. I said, would you pay an average WordPress developer $150 an hour? He said, absolutely not. I said, what would it cost you? He said, about $50 an hour. I said, so you're overpaying by $100 an hour to do mediocre work. And the, the light suddenly went off in his head and he realized if he could free himself up from that, he would suddenly have a, a time available that he could bill out or devote to important projects where he could really reap a return on it. And so that's basically, that's kind of the secret of how I've grown my, my business. Now, 35 full-time people were, you know, high eight figure uh, business. And the reason that that's happened is because I stay in my lane, I stay focused on my desire zone, and I give the work to other people who are more competent that can actually do it better than I can do it. So I want to shift gears for a minute and talk about how this book came to be, because this is obviously a, uh, you know, a body of work that's built up over time. I've been following your work for a long time, uh, you know, uh, from I remember when we were talking, I, I think I bought your nonfiction book proposal thing. Remember I told you that, you know, the, the, Oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> well, the, the, I think the first thing I, the first way I ever tried to monetize my, my blog. Yeah. So what is the culmin? This book is the culmination of, of so many things. Can you kind of detail the journey to where, cause I think that the way I read it is this is like the book where you're, where it's almost like, okay, there it is. You know what I mean? Like it's, 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 it's almost like it's the release of wisdom and knowledge that's kind of been waiting to come out in one kind of format for quite some time. Yeah. So I was one of those guys that even in college, you know, I had a daily task list. I had a calendar. 
I scheduled my time. I got up early. I went to bed early. You know, I, I was just contrary to the, to the culture. I so always sort of been a productivity geek. When all this stuff began to move online, I was the first guy to try, you know, the Palm Pilot and anything that would uh, promise to make me more productive. And so one of the things I started noticing uh, maybe about 15 years ago, well, actually, by the way, in 2004, when I started my blog, it was called Working Smart. And I was, it was all about my productivity hacks and what I was learning about productivity. But about that time, maybe a few years later than that, I started noticing that my inboxes were multiplying. So social media started happening, text messages started happening. Of course, email had been with us. And now it's Slack and thousands of apps and all kinds of stuff. And, and one of the things I found is that I was losing focus, that I was having difficulty being present. And so I started to work out a system, first with myself, then with my teammates at work, and then with our clients. And so this body of work began in a formal sense with a course that I created called Free to Focus. It was an online course. We've had thousands of people go through the course. Then from that, we created a live event because some people just wanted to not do it online, but wanted to be present for a couple of days and actually work through uh, the content. So we did that twice a year over the course of the last three years. So I got a lot of interaction, figured out what worked, what was just peculiar to me, but what was universal in its application to uh, other people. So the book is the distillation of basically 35 years of a career, interactions with thousands of leaders and business owners who have tried to be more productive, and really wrestling philosophically with the distraction economy that we're in, because the things that, that, that worked even 15 years ago, I don't find they work quite as well today. We need a new system for a new time. And now you're done. You're not going to write anymore because you're finished, right? That's right. This is a magnum opus. I'm done. <laughs> uh, let's let's get into the the third step because I think that you talked about limiting beliefs uh, earlier on, and I think that this is where when we get into the idea of acting, you know, the, you, you, you've talked about planning your ideal week before. It's it's something that I've seen you write about. I want to touch on it, but again, I think that some people get caught up in the well there's no, my weeks are so dynamic. They're never the same. How can I possibly uh, map it out to be ideal? I'm just going to deal with it as it comes. Can you kind of uh, sure. expand upon that? Because I think that's one thing that people, I know I come across it with people where they're like, oh, well, it, it must be, it's it's fine for Mike, right? Or it's, well, and I guess both for us, right. it's fine for Mike. So can you dive into that the a little bit? Of the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that this is a, a question where, or an issue where people think, um, I don't have control, and I, I get the. This, here's how it shows up a lot of times. I don't have control of my uh, of all my time, so I can't con take control of any of my time. And so, you know, the same thing is here is because everything seems to be changing. There's nothing constant. Well, if you analyze that a little bit further, there probably are some constants. And I'm not asking people to take control over time they can't control or to not allow for the variables. But when you start with a blueprint. And even if you can only shoehorn 80% of what's happening into an ideal week, that's going to give you some predictability and some intentionality that is going to give you progress and momentum. Let me give you an example. So it used to be, back before I did an ideal week, that I would take meetings whenever. So somebody would make a request and they'd say, hey, going to be in town on, on Wednesday. How about a meeting? And so I said, wait a second. You know, there's this thing about context switching and about headspace that's really important to consider, the brain science part of this. You know, if I'm constantly being interrupted by meetings when I'm trying to do productive, focused work, 
then I'm never going to be as productive and as focused as I would like. So now what I do, all my external meetings, and with some exceptions, I'm not legalistic about it, but all my external meetings I try to do on Fridays. All my internal meetings I try to do on Mondays. Tuesday for me is a backstage day also where I'm preparation, preparing for front stage work. And then typically Wednesdays and Thursdays, like I'm doing today, are days where I'm either doing podcast interviews or I'm creating video content or doing a webinar or something that's on the front stage. That enables me to organize my work in a way that best serves me and where I get in a headspace and I can make progress. Now, in addition to that, one of the concepts I, I teach in the book in that same chapter on Consolidate is the idea of mega batching. And we've all you know, practiced batching where we do similar activities at a single, as a single setting so we can, again, get that headspace. But I kind of biggie size this. So, for example, when I record my podcast, um, I sit down with my producer and with Megan, who's my co-host, and we'll do 13 episodes over a day and a half and knock them out. And then we don't think about it for another, another 12 weeks. That gives us the ability to consolidate that similar work, get in the groove where we've overcome the initial inertia and we get momentum and it becomes easier to do each subsequent episode. Does that make sense? Totally. And, and the other great thing about that is when you when you kind of batch all those tasks like that, uh, we know that the production time is actually often the shortest when it comes to creating anything. It's yes. the pre-production and the post-production, so you can focus more on that stuff. So true. And it's, it's kind of like Jim Collins talks about in Good to Great, the flywheel illustration. You know, it's tough when you're trying to get a flywheel to spin. You know, those uh, the first effort, it takes a lot of energy to get something going. But then after a while... It's really easy to keep it spinning because you got the, the power of momentum. Uh, you touched on backstage and front stage work. I want to, uh, can you explain that a little bit for the listeners? Because they may not know what that is. Yeah, I find it helpful to think of life as a stage. You know, this comes from Shakespeare, you know, all the life's a stage. And uh, so I designate three different times, uh, three different kinds of time. So there's, first of all, there's offstage. Now, a lot of people don't know that this even exists. You know, that they can actually take time off, that they don't have to spend their entire life working evenings, weekends, no vacations. And yet so many people are increasingly doing that today. So time off stage when you just you don't think about work, you don't talk about work. I don't even read books about work or listen to podcast work on my downtime, on my offstage time. Then there's backstage time. And this is going to be different for everybody. This is where you're preparing to deliver on the front stage of your life. And I don't mean by front stage what we're doing here today where you and I are literally, we're on a digital stage presenting to the world. But it's whatever people are paying you for, whatever the result, the work product is, that's your front stage. And the backstage is the preparation that leads to that. So for example, if you're an attorney, your front stage might look like contract negotiations on behalf of a client, um, presenting you know, before a court, you know, making your case, the backstage work could be preparing the brief, preparing to argue that case uh, in court or preparing for the negotiation or preparing the paperwork or whatever. That's all the backstage work. So it's different for everybody. But I find that if you identify the front stage time and you can batch that together and really make use of the backstage, you're going to be more efficient on the front stage. All right, we're going to take a break from the proceedings now to talk about our sponsor for this episode, Front. Now, Front was founded in 2013, and while there are many things that could have been improved about email, the major pain point that Front 
went after was that email was not designed for the way people work as part of teams today. And I could not agree more. I've had a chance to play with front. I've had a demo. I've been using it with my team. It's absolutely fantastic. It's to me, it's, it's that app that's as simple as you need it to be, but as powerful as you want it to be when it comes to bridging the gap between email and say task management or project management. It's just a great communication hub. It's eliminating a lot of the other tools that we were using. And uh, it's there to me, it's just a a fantastic bridge. It's the app that's kind of been missing in our our productivity path here with my team. Uh, You can forward CC and BCCs. You just, they, they just add to the chaos in your regular email inbox. I don't like that. So what happens there is there's no accountability. If I'm trying to keep track of what uh, my operations assistant is doing, uh, you know, the threading of emails and traditional email apps don't allow me to do that. But front, they, they, they fix that. They completely fix that. It's, they've reinvented email for the way that teams work. There's new workflows, so efficient collaboration, all the communication channels are in one place, one place, and nearly 5,000 businesses are relying on their front inboxes to accomplish more as a team. If you need to reference a CRM or a project management tool to respond, there's 50 app integrations right there in your inbox. We are using that with our task management and project management tools. It's working like a charm. If you need to loop a colleague into your email, and that happens a lot with, with my with my team, just Mention them with the, you know, the typical at in the thread. And if you want to assign a conversation to that person and remove it from your inbox. So if I want to delegate something, I can do that too. And, and so can you. If you want to automate the assignment so all similar messages are, that are related to it go to that person. You don't even have to see them. No problem. Totally, totally done. In fact, with Front's efficient email for teams, customers report that every person on their team save an average of six hours per week that would otherwise be spent managing email. That's a lot of time. Email is a real time suck. And six hours of focus on the work that really matters, that's that's productive. You can't get more productive than that. So if you're ready to transform your team's productivity with efficient email, you got to give Front a try. You can get started with Front for just nine dollars a month. That's crazy savings. Just visit frontapp.com slash timecrafting to start your free trial today. So again, go to frontapp.com slash timecrafting to start that free trial today. You will not regret it. I'm going to have more to say about Front over the next several weeks. We're using it. We're loving it. I know you will too. I'd like to thank Front for sponsoring this episode of the Productivity is Podcast. Now let's get back to the show. I want to touch on the idea of distractions. And one of the things that you talk about in the book, especially in the third step, is the idea of how to beat them. So I'll give you a quick personal example. Right now, uh, I'm sitting in my podcasting chair, which is kind of the zone that I kind of, I have different productivity zones in my office. And I'm looking across at my, you know, my Herman Miller chair, and I'm envisioning you in that chair. So I'm having a conversation with you. So I'm able to not get distracted by anything else that might be going on in the space. So that's one tactic that I use. But you talk about beating distractions in the book as well. That's one of the biggest productivity killers out there. Can you touch on those a little bit? Yeah. So one of the things I find, Mike, in order to make progress and be productive is you have to have an offense plan and you have to have a defense plan. So the offense plan is actually the chapter that precedes that on coming up with a plan for your quarter, coming up with a plan for your week, and coming up with a plan for your day. Once you have that, you still have the opposition or the challenge of staying on track. And that shows up in two forms. Interruptions, those are typically external. Somebody interrupts our work. And I get this complaint all the time from leaders who say, 
I don't have time to get my own work done because I'm constantly being interrupted by other people who want my help in getting their work done. Then there's the distractions, and these are probably um, the most powerful of all, but we have to acknowledge that they're mostly internally driven. So we allow ourselves to become distracted. Nobody's holding a gun to our head and making us go jump over to Facebook and we need to be writing that blog post or preparing that legal brief or working on some important thing that delivers the result in our business. So with distractions, I think we've got to be really aggressive. We've got to realize, first of all, and you talked about digital minimalism, Cal uh, Newport talks about this in that book, that we're kind of outgunned. In fact, he calls it David and Goliath 2.0. You know, we've got these giant social media companies that are spending literally billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to distract us. Now, what they're trying to do is collect our attention and our focus, package it and resell it to the highest bidder, advertisers. And so we're outgunned. They understand all too well that if they can get us to compulsively check our devices, that that will corral our attention and they could resell it, sell it. Their whole business model depends on that. But we've got the opposite issue. If we allow ourselves to be corralled by them to continue to uh, service the dopamine hit by constantly checking social media, we'll never get anything done. This is why the average person is picking up their cell phone 150, 200 times a day, every time they get bored. Uh, Kel Newport talked about that in uh, the book, The uh, Deep Work, where he talked about frustration tolerance. Very few of us today have a good frustration tolerance where we're tempted to get distracted. We say, nope, I'm going to stay with it because I'm right on the verge of a breakthrough. I'm right on the verge of solving this problem. And if I get distracted, I'm going to get out of the headspace and it's going to take longer to actually get the work done. So what that looks like, and I just did this as a result of, of reading digital minimalism, I realized that my phone had become a very expensive, I got an iPhone uh, XS Max, has become a very effective, very expensive distraction machine. You know, constantly picking it up, like everybody else, I had email, Slack, all my uh, social media apps on here. And so a couple weeks ago, I took off email, I took off Slack, and I took all social media apps off with the exception of one, and that's Instagram. But using screen time, I limited my access to 30 minutes a day, and I handed my phone to Gail, my wife, and I said, I want you to choose a passcode. I don't want you to tell me what it is. I want you to give my to my assistant in case something happens to you, but I want either one of you to tell me what it is. So when I reach my 30 minute limit, I'm done with Instagram. So that is made, I, I mean, I'm honestly, evaluated whether I need a phone at all. I mean, I guess for emergency calls or text messages from the family, but I am picking it up uh, so little. I mean, initially I was compulsively picking it up and going, oh, there's nothing on here. And I put it back down. And I did that for about three days where now I don't, uh, last night I went into to a restaurant and went to dinner with a couple and didn't even take my phone in. There was no reason to take it in. So that's how we have to deal with distractions. And I, I know, I think you and I talked about the app uh, Freedom at freedom.to. You know, at, I'm a little frustrated with it at the moment because they're having some problems with um, Apple devices, iOS devices, but still on the desktop, it's hugely helpful because you can block apps, you can block websites, you can go into a session where you're completely undistracted and the only way to defeat it is to reboot your computer. And for me, that, that creates just enough friction 
to remind me of what my purpose is, to exercise some frustration tolerance and stay in the moment, stay working on the problem. So let's let's be clear. You just mentioned the idea that it's just enough friction. So keep in mind for a lot of people out there that are listening right now that taking all of your communications apps off of your phone might be more than too much friction. So again, this actually leads to nicely into my next question is about the idea that um, it's a lot of this stuff is personal, right? It's subjective. Uh, you know, totally. I mean, the, when when they're going through this book, I think, uh, and and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but there are things that it's kind of like that Bruce Lee adage, right? Absorb what's useful, um, you know, uh, kind of discard what you you might might not be because maybe you've already got some frameworks. I mean, there's tons of them out there in play that might work sure. for you, and then add your own to the mix. So, like for example, I've done something similar with my phones. I'll get to that at the tail end of the episode so people can hear about it. But I mean, how? How important is it for people to keep in mind that productivity is a very personal thing and there's no one size fits all solution? That's totally true. And that's why the chat the, the book begins with that chapter on formulate. And I take you through an exercise called your productivity vision. You know, what do you want? What is productivity going to create for you? How is it going to create a bigger, better future for you? What does that look like? What's at stake, both positively and negatively? Then you could begin to create the kind of uh, personalized, customized productivity system that'll work for you. And what I've tried to teach in the book, and there are strategies and hacks and all that, but I try to teach principles so that people can adapt it to their season of life, to their particular role in life, to all the things that make them them. See, that's what we need more of too, productivity principles as opposed to productivity hacks. I think that's what a lot of people go for, the hacks, because they seem to be quick and dirty, but they can th those things can kind of break, especially like you mentioned freedom. Totally. Freedom is a great example. Freedom used to work really well for iOS. Now, all of a sudden, with when iOS makes changes, largely screen time. I think screen time had a lot to do with that, to be honest. Um, I do, too. I almost think Apple did, did that as a self-preservation move, because if they don't help us control our devices, people are just going to stop using them. I mean, there's a... As you probably know, and maybe we're going to get into this, but there's kind of a growing movement of minimalistic dumb phones. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And actually, to your to uh, to piggyback off of that, once you posted that, I saw you post on Facebook. I think you posted on Instagram as well. Um, I did. A lot of people kind of followed suit. So my question isn't isn't so much uh, did you look at them all that, but how does it feel to have like, I mean, you're a leader in the space. You're a thought leader. I mean, I don't want to use thought leader, but you're a leader in the space. People, you know, how does that, how does that make you feel? Because I think that, that, uh, it, it's, it's something that, uh, I think is really cool, but I think that there could be some, you know, people watching you and going, like I said earlier, it's a personal choice. Productivity is personal. So not everybody can be Michael Hyatt, right? Right. And, and thank God not everybody will be, <laughs> you know, some of my family would argue that one of me is more than enough. But, uh, you know, I guess I, I'm humbled by it. And I'm also, I feel accountable to it, knowing that I have responsibility for what I share. And I always try to put in, I don't always do it, but I always try to at least approach it with uh, um, the presupposition that this is what's working for me. You know, it, it's kind of another level. And a lot of people that write a productivity do it from that framework, what works for them personally. You know, I've got a little bit added advantage in that what I'm I'm sharing typically, and not the case of the smartphone, but but in the stuff that's taught in Free to Focus, this has not just worked with me, but that it's worked with thousands of clients over a variety of industries in a lot of different cultural contexts, and sort of this is the creme de la creme. But even then, I know that the world is changing so fast, and what works for one 
will not work for another. And I think our work styles, how we initiate work, our personalities, all those things come into play. You've got to find something that works for you. Speaking of what works for someone, for me, journaling, I said we get back to that, is the thing I do at the end of the day. And I totally agree that it's underrated. What what does journaling look like for you? Because when I talked to James Clear, it was something he struggled with, the idea of journaling. He finally was able to kind of nail it down to like, if I do one sentence a day, then that's that's good for me and that's allowed me to keep the habit. So what does a journal entry, first off, is it digital? Is it paper? What does it look like for my client? Yeah, so I actually sell a product called the Faux Focus Journal, and it's a paper analog uh, journal. And it consists of eight questions. And these are questions that I've been using now for eight years, coincidentally. And it was my wife that on a vacation, I just left the big corporate world. And she said to me, she said, I've been reading about journaling. I've been journaling myself. And I really think this is something you could, should consider. And I was like, oh, man, I, I, I have no interest in journaling. I tried that before. Didn't work. And she said, I, I just want you to try it just as an experiment. By the way, we sucker each other into stuff all the time by saying it's just an experiment. Just try it. So I said, OK, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for I don't I can't remember it was seven days or 30 days or whatever. I got into it. And one of the things I realized right away and I'm a writer, but I realized I didn't like when it came to my own you know, internal reflection and thinking through my own emotions and everything, I did not like looking at a, at a blank uh, computer screen or a blank piece of paper. So I put together uh, eight questions that I wanted to ask myself every day. Now, these have evolved a little bit over time, but today it's eight questions. And I always do it at night. And again, that's what, or excuse me, in the morning, that's what works for me. So when I get up and I'm rested, I find that I have better perspective on what happened the previous day. I tend to lose perspective, particularly in the evening, you know, when I'm tired and I like to kind of have overnight to, to let it percolate a little bit and then write. So my first question is, is, uh, uh, you know, what happened yesterday? So a simple recounting of the facts or the events of the day. And then I talk about what were my three biggest wins from yesterday? Cause I want to focus on the positive. I could focus on the negative and I might acknowledge that in the first question, but I want to try to distill, you know, what were the wins out of yesterday? One of the things I discovered early on, Mike, is that I rarely have bad days. What I often have is a few bad hours. And so making that distinction that I can usually find something where I won in the day, even if there were, you know, I might be tempted to think that it was a bad day. If I can focus on where I won, it helps protect my confidence and gives me a sense of momentum uh, going forward. And then there's, you know, six other questions in addition sure. to that. But that just, even when I don't feel inspired, I can answer the questions. Well, and I think, I think uh, there's been research uh, done that uh, your brain tends to focus more on the bad things than the good things. So if you, uh, if you take the time to do this, then what's going to happen is you're going to, you know, those few bad hours, as opposed to the whole day, you're, you're kind of uh, skewing, uh, you're skewing what the day looks like if you don't journal or if you do, you're like, oh, okay, well, wait a minute. It was just those couple hours. Right. So yeah, we could, there's, I mean, we could talk about energy levels because we kind of touched on that a little bit here and, uh, but but we got to get close to wrapping up here. So, Michael, I want to thank you for joining me on the show today. The, the new book is called Free to Focus. Um, is there anything that you want to kind of leave uh, my, my listeners with, one parting uh, piece of advice or, or wisdom uh, that'll help them uh, going forward? Yeah, well, let me just say, first of all, that um, they can find out more at freetofocusbook.com. We've got some great bonuses if they buy the book and 
submit their receipt there and they don't, doesn't matter where they buy it, but some great free bonuses there that'll help them apply this and absorb it. But I, I think the biggest, quickest win, and I hear this from my clients all the time. I hear about people from social on social media uh, inside the book. I talk about this and the full focus planner has the application of this, but identifying your daily big three, this is crucial because so many people that are into the productivity space have been sucked into sort of this list mania where they wake up in the morning, they have 20, 25 things they got to get done. They think they have to get done. And even before they start, they know that isn't going to happen. You know, they, there's not enough time of the day to get that many things done. So they begin with a sense of overwhelm and dread because they've set themselves up for failure. Then even if they get half the list done, if they get 10 or 12 things done, they've had a highly productive day by anybody else's standard, they still feel defeated because they're focused on all the stuff that's left undone. So they go to bed defeated. This kind of cycle does not make for a happy life. So we got to be more intelligent and create a game that we can win. And we know from the Pareto principle that 20% of the work or the effort is going to drive 80% of the results. So if you could distill your must-do list, your I call them the daily big three, to three items and only three items, items that would you know, move the ball forward, move the needle in your business, accomplish something really significant, what would those three be today? Focus on those, get those done, and pat yourself on the back. You can still have the other trivial tasks, you know, the errands that you got to run or this little task that takes a few minutes. And if you get to some of those, great. But at least you know that you've got three important tasks done. And if you could do that every day over the course of a year, you know, 250 typical work days, 750 tasks in a year, that makes for an amazing year and you'll see progress in your life as a result. Well, there's uh, someone said you can't buy happiness, but you can buy back your time. And that amounts to the same thing. A very wise man said that once. And that's definitely what what doing that will do. Uh, so I think, well, it was, I think it was you that said that <laughs> in the new book. <laughs> For, <laughs> isn't it amazing how we sometimes forget what we wrote in the very books that we've written? <laughs> oh my gosh, I know. It happens to me all the time. Michael, thanks for joining me today on the Productivityist Podcast. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it very much. Big thanks to Michael Hyatt for joining me on the show today. It's always a pleasure to talk to somebody who's passionate about productivity, and clearly Michael Hyatt is passionate about productivity. Uh, you can pick up his new book, Free to Focus, wherever books are sold. And of course, go to the links in the show notes because there's tons of stuff that we talked about in there. And uh, again, uh, whenever you, I talk to someone about productivity and, and the, the different practices, there's always a lot of crossover. So I really love the fact that you know we can hang out and chat and and uh, productivity professionals like Michael and myself can just really get into things. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation because it was it was a fun one for me to have. A big thanks to John Polstra for producing the show as always. Big thanks to Connie for putting the show notes together. Thanks to you for listening and thanks to Blinkist for sponsoring this episode. If you want to try a free seven-day trial of Blinkist, and I know that you do, then you can go to Blinkist.com slash timecrafting. That's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash timecrafting to get that free seven-day trial. And, and, and it's, it's a no-brainer. Give it a go. Feed your mind uh, with Blinkist. The other sponsor I want to thank, of course, is Front. Front is transforming Teams productivity and and they're doing it through more efficient email practices with just greater workflows. And it's, it's, I, I gotta say, ever since we started using it here at Productivity, it's 
I'm in love with it. And, and my team is as well. So you just need to uh, get started with Front. Of course, it's nine bucks per month. But if you visit frontapp.com slash timecrafting, you can start your free trial. So don't forget to check that out. Again, frontapp.com slash timecrafting. You can start your free trial today. So big thanks to Front for sponsoring this episode of the show. That's it for this episode. Again, thanks so much for listening. I hope you subscribe to the show if you liked it. Then I want you to hear more episodes and I don't want you to miss a single one. So subscribe to the podcast and Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this show. And until next time, I'm Mike Vardy, the host of the Productivityist Podcast, reminding you to stop guessing and start going. See you later.